You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with all of you, and um, thanks for being here, including those of you joining us via via Zoom online, you count as well. And for those of you listening to this as a podcast later, I just wanna mention that. Thank you for tuning in and to remind all of you that every week um, the talks that are given up here and the discussion that always follows is part of what we call the central cast, which um, you can listen to. And I'm, I am sometimes the recipient of emails from those around the country that say, hey, I've never been to your church, but I listen to your podcast regularly. And um, thanks for doing that, yada, yada, yada. So uh, yeah, this church's reach is, is beyond this room <laughs> on Sunday mornings and across the interwebs, I guess you would say. Today is part two in our summer series called VBS for Heretics. Uh, it's a series we do pretty much every summer. And for those of you unfamiliar, VBS means what? vacation Bible school. If you grew up in the church, uh, like I did, you went to VBS, uh, mixed reviews about VBS. Yes, in this room, mixed reviews. Yes, a little bit of trauma, maybe, <clears throat> perhaps there for some of us, um, right? So during this series, and I'm not sure how long it'll go, maybe six weeks, through part of September, we're going to be looking at what um, I believe are the biggest stories in scripture or what some would call or scholars would call um, the myths, the big myths within the Bible. And to be clear, myth, that word comes with baggage for us English Anglophone speakers. Um, we often think of myth as false, untrue, fairy tales. Well, no, in a very scholarly way, myth is simply a story that defines reality for a community of people. It, it, it what defines identity for a culture, a society. It's what defines, what, which helps them locate themselves in the world, their story, who they are, what it means to be them, what is reality, their relationship to the world, their relationship to the divine. This is what myth really means. So the, the full title of this series is VBS for Heretics, True Myths, where we're going to be looking at what I, what I feel you're always free to disagree. What are the, the most defining myths or stories that you find in the scriptures and what they might mean for us? And so today we're looking at the story of Adam and Eve from Genesis chapter three, uh, the story of them eating the forbidden fruit. And I'm just gonna read most of this, this story here this morning. This will take five minutes. Um, so we're gonna, we're gonna do that now. And the story actually begins in the, in the sentence the last sentence in chapter two, um, keep in mind that the verse numbers and the chapter numbers that you find in the Bible are superimposed, they're, they're brought in later. Uh, I think the story really starts at the end of chapter two of Genesis. And it reads this way. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit 
of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some also to her husband, who was with her. He also ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. The first bikini bottoms, I believe this was, yes? They, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? He responded, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. God replies, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman, the woman you gave me, a wise one. Right, The woman you gave me, she gave me the, the fruit from the tree, and I ate. And Eve said, go fuck yourself, Aunt. No, I'm kidding. Then the, Lord God said to the, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, it, the, the serpent, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. The next thing that, that happens is that God punishes the... I'm skipping ahead a little bit here to save my time. The next thing that happens is that God punishes the serpent for encouraging them to do what was forbidden. And then God tells Adam and Eve that they too will suffer consequences of this act. Adam will have to work hard to grow food and till the ground and agriculture. And Eve will have pain in childbirth. In the end, both of them are told... They are banished. They must leave the garden, never to return. And the story ends with God saying this. See, the man has become like one of us. Who is he talking to? Who's us? Good question, right? See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east end of the garden, he planted a cherubim, an angel, with a sword, flaming sword, turning to and fro to guard the way to the tree of life. There it is. <laughs> There's the story. There's... There's Genesis 3, what some call the fall of man. Have you heard of that, that term before, the fall of man? 
or just the fall? It's important to note that this term, the fall, is not found anywhere in the Bible. Nowhere. This is a term that we invented. I'm not sure exactly when. I've really tried to find out the, uh, the etymology or the, the history of this word, who, who came up with it, as best as I can tell. The modern age, sometime in the last 150 years or so, probably you know, traditional Christians, or what we might call fundamentalists, invented it. But the idea behind it um, has been around at least since the third or fourth century, since the time of the what's called the patristic era, the era of the church fathers, Arrhenius, Augustine. Um, that's where this idea comes from, of original sin. This idea of there being a, a cataclysmic event here in Genesis 3, when humanity first sinned and fell from grace and thereby ushered into existence all manner of suffering and corruption and decay and death. Keep in mind, this is not an idea found anywhere in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. You find hints of this, this doctrine of original sin or this doctrine of the fall in some of the, apostles, the Apostle Paul's letters. This is really kind of loosely there. You don't find it anywhere in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Rather, it's more likely that this idea came to exist in the third and fourth century, meaning 300 years after Christ in the early, what we would call kind of like the early church age. This idea was then later further developed in the Middle Ages by church theologians, Aquinas, others, and then solidified in the modern age. Well, solidified more, I would say, in the late Middle Ages with the Protestant Reformation. Calvin loved this story, loved to teach about depravity and the fall of man, original sin and the need for redemption. Calvin and some of the reformers loved that, 15th century. But this, this idea of the fall, the doctrine of the fall, as we now understand it, really took shape and took hold probably over the last 150 years by fundamentalists. It became a very important doctrine in the church because without it, without it, the thinking is that Jesus died for nothing. Jesus came and died for nothing without it. We're told that Jesus came to reverse the curse. Have you heard that before? Reverse the curse? Very Christianese. Maybe a VBS term. Uh, we're told that Jesus came to reverse the curse, to undo the effects of the fall. The story for many Christians, the, the grand overarching story of Scripture, what we would call a meta-narrative, <laughs> for many Christians is simply this. It's a three-act play. God made creation perfect, Human sin ruined it, so God had to send Jesus to fix it. That's the way many Christians traditionally have understood the three-act play, the meta-narrative of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The, the thinking was, after the fall, God needed to initiate a way to bring Christ into the world in order to die for our sins, and the way he did that was by forming this covenant with Abraham forming and forging the, the, the religious law of the Jewish religion and the nation of Israel and the tabernacle and the temple and all the Hebrew traditions in order to set the stage 
that Jesus might enter the world and die an atoning death on the cross as a propitiation for original sin and ultimately not just to set humanity free from the power of sin and death, but all of creation and the cosmos as well. Wow. I just preached the fundamentalist gospel in 30 seconds right there. That's it. But that's that's a story so many of us were raised on. And it is a story that is entirely predicated, entirely built upon this idea of the fall. Okay? Again, the reason why we're told there's natural disasters like earthquakes and storm, the reason why there is, there is predation, why lions kill gazelles, horrific things in nature taking place like that all the time, the reason why there's disease is all because of us, we're told. Before we sinned, our ancient ancestors, we're told everything was idyllic and perfect, but our sin somehow supernaturally altered the created order. Now, to be clear, not all, not all believers in the doctrine of the fall subscribe to it in all the ways I just subscribed or described. There's a lot of nuance there. There's nuanced different understandings, but that's basically the gist. That's what I grew up believing. And again, all of this is seen as an impetus for why Jesus needed to come and die. He came to fix what we broke, which is something we're told completely English, the second coming when he returns to judge the living and the dead and to create a new heaven and a new earth and essentially set things back to an Eden-like state. So we're told. The problem, and there's many, the, but the, the problem with this understanding of both human and cosmic history are manifold. But the main problem, in my estimation, is that we now know, just over the last few hundred years, we now know through what can best be described as a mountain of scientific evidence about natural history, that there was no time period on earth of idyllic perfection where the lion lay with the lamb, so to speak. We now know that millions of years, millions of years before humanity existed, we, we, Homo sapien has only existed, we think, for approximately 300,000 years, a short blip, a tiny blip on the timeline that is the long history of life on Earth. We now know that millions of years before we were here, animals were suffering and dying. Asteroids were striking the Earth, causing mass extinctions. There was predation, there was disease. And when, when we arrived on the scene, Homo sapien, approximately 300,000 years ago, we too were in a vicious struggle for survival against nature and each other. This has always been the case. What we see today in the world, this is the way things always have been. There was no pre-fallen, pre-lapsarian, to use a technical term, period here on earth where everything was perfect. This is just not true. So the story is not God made creation perfect, 
Humanson ruined it. And this, of course, raises some pretty important questions about, well, why then did Jesus need to come and die? And we can talk more about that in the discussion portion today, if you'd like. But another question is also important here, and it's this one. How could an all-loving and all-powerful God create a world like this one? Fraught with the problems of this one. And this is a question that I think the ancient Hebrews wrestled with. And they basically resolved it by arguing, well, they didn't really resolve it, but they tried. And they did it by arguing basically, not all of them, but basically you'll find this in the, in the Old Testament, this idea that God is the author of both life and death, suffering and tranquility, prosperity and calamity. God is sovereign. God is, God's sovereignty and holiness means that he is beyond reproach. He is beyond the reach of human judgment. I'm not saying this is sound theology. To be, I'm not saying I agree with this. It's not something I myself believe in, but that's what they apparently thought. And yet we still find in the Hebrew Bible disagreements about such matters. If you've ever read the book of Job or the Psalms, you find this, you find people challenging God's justice, God's fairness, God's goodness. There are those who question God's justice and power, like the author of Job and, and some of the Psalms. We see Abraham and Moses even questioning God, you know, negotiating with him saying to him, far be it from you, Lord, to commit genocide and to do what is evil. And God says, hey, you're right, I probably shouldn't. They change God's mind. So even the Hebrew scriptures are not univocal about these matters. But in general, the, the traditional Hebrew position that we find in the Old Testament is that God is sovereign and holy and the author of both life and death the bringer of both calamity and prosperity, and who are you, O mortal, to challenge or question the Most High? The Genesis 3 story, I think, is a good example of this traditional Hebrew view. The key thing to understand about the story, now I'm going to exegete it a little bit, that the key thing about this story is Adam and Eve's nakedness. That's the key thing to understand. And the fact that they didn't know they were created naked and they didn't know they were naked until they ate the fruit from the tree of what? The knowledge of good and evil, right? Prior to that moment, their eyes were blinded to their nakedness which was their true created condition. God made them without clothes, but they didn't know they were naked until they ate the fruit. What did their nakedness represent? Well, it wasn't something good. It didn't symbolize something like freedom and intimacy between themselves and God, which is the view that I was raised on. It was their nakedness was something good. That's a modern evangelical interpretation 
In the ancient Hebrew tradition, nakedness always represented something negative or bad. Nakedness represented things like lack, poverty. Obviously, because if you were naked, it probably meant you were poor. It was true in the ancient world. Poor, a lot of poor people couldn't afford clothes. But nakedness not only represented material poverty and lack in the Hebrew tradition, but spiritual poverty and lack too. Numerous passages in the Old Testament, numerous, talk about how nakedness represented unholiness, sin, and shame. Nakedness represented a kind of spiritual poverty and lack. Again, remember, Adam and Eve didn't know they were naked until they ate from the tree of knowledge. The tree lived up to its name. It revealed to them the true nature of themselves and the world around them. Upon eating the fruit, Adam and Eve's eyes were open to their nakedness, to their true created condition, to their lack, to the fact that they weren't immortal and perfect godlike beings, but human finite, of the earth. This is what their nakedness represented. And notice, again, God is the one who created them this way. God created them without clothes, and also without, them, without the knowledge of it until they ate from the forbidden tree, the tree of knowledge. I love how when God shows up in the garden after this moment, he can't find Adam and Eve, right? And so he calls out, where are you? And Adam, Adam, well, it's kind of funny. He's hiding behind some trees, right? God can't find them. You know, it's like, are trees kryptonite to God? He can't see them, right? And so Adam replies after God is asking, where are you? Adam replies, I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid, and God responds with this incredible question. This is an incredible question. Who told you that you were naked? How did you find this out? In other words, who revealed to you your true created condition? Who showed you that? How did you find out the truth? Notice God does not say, come out from behind those trees, take those silly loincloths of fig leaves off. You're, you're perfect just as I made you. No, instead he reinforces what they believe about their, naked, about their nakedness. He actually makes for them better clothing out of animal hide. Of course, this is all symbolism. This is an allegory. Please do not hear any of this as literal, historical, scientific retelling of history, right? But he reinforces what they believe about their nakedness, that it represents lack, mortality, frailty, finitude. It represents what it means to be human. That's it. In the end, this is a story, I think, about a great awakening. It's a story about the loss of innocence and naivete. It's a story about humanity becoming aware of their status 
as mortal, finite creatures living in a mortal and finite world. It's about us realizing also that we're, we're moral agents. We have the capacity to do good or evil. We have this power. We can choose to do right or wrong. But this is a story about what we could say the genesis or the birth of human consciousness as we understand it. It's not a story about a fall from grace. It's not a story about how we fell into depravity or how we ushered into existence all manner of evil and suffering and death and predation and disease, yada, yada, yada. That's a bad reading. In the end, Adam and Eve, were told, are forced to leave the garden, never to return. I, I think this is symbolic of what it means to burn the bridge of naivete. Once you become aware of reality and the truth of life and being, there is no going back. We've all heard the saying before, ignorance is bliss, right? In this case, ignorance is a blissful garden of Eden. But once you eat from the tree of knowledge, once your eyes have been opened to reality, the garden's gone and it's gone forever. You have burned the bridge of naivete. You have lost your innocence. You have matured. You have grown up. You have come of age. That's what this story is about. This is what the human spiritual journey is about, deconstructed ones. Once you know, you can't unknow what you know. It forces you out of the ignorance and the bliss of ignorance and the naivete and the simplicity and the innocence of wherever you were. You can't unknow what you now know. That's, that's the truth of life and what it means to grow up. And this story is about humanity coming of age. That's a, it's a powerful story in that regard. It's a true story, I think. It told in an ancient context about the birth or the genesis of human consciousness and what we might even say human spirituality. The fact is, now I'm speaking anthropologically, the fact is somewhere in the distant past, our species, maybe 300,000 years ago, went from being just simple apes, unaware of our mortality, unaware of moral categories like good and evil, at least like how we understand them now, to being aware of all these things and more. At some point in the distant past, our brains exploded in size. We know this, and we became sentient, conscious, aware of our awareness. <laughs> There's a trip, aware that we're aware. That's wild. And that has spiritual implications. The depth of awareness must have been a, a profound shift for our species and what made us really human and spiritual beings who contemplate and wrestle with the nature of existence and questions like, what does it mean to be? What does it mean to be here, to be alive? 
What does it mean to die? What does it mean to live well? What is God? What is ultimate reality? This is the birth, the genesis of human consciousness, human spirituality. And I think on a deeper level, this is what this story was about. I think the Genesis 3 is describing in a very rudimentary way, a very rudimentary way, this incredible shift of awareness in the evolution of the human mind in a way that distinguishes us from the rest of the animal kingdom. I think the ancients looked at the animals and the world around them and said, what makes us different from them? Why are we so different from them? Something must have happened to us in the past. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever, that caused us to be different from the bear, the antelope, the, the chimpanzee, whatever, the insect. What made us different? Well, we must have had this, this profound moment. They're not wrong. And they weren't scientific, but they're not actually scientifically all that incorrect here. There was a period of time where we evolved in this way. We became aware. We ate from the tree of knowledge. We became aware. And there's no returning to innocence. This story is true, is what I'm saying. This is a true story. That's why I love this story so much. Yeah, it's, of course, it's poetry, it's allegory, it's figurative, but it's also true. It's talking about, on a deeper level, something true about us and what it means to be human. That's why I love this story so much. All right, there's my talk for today. Lots going on there having to do with how we understand the gospel, how we understand history. Um, I'm hoping you have questions or comments. Jason, I, I don't know why I looked at you and you raised your hand. It was a God moment, maybe, or I just intuitively knew. Yeah, yeah. Because I have to talk about this story. This story is awesome. What's I, that? You, you like this story? I really like this story. Yeah. And I, I like, I think your interpretation is dead on where I think it is too. And, um, there's a lot of uh, sex talk in that story that yeah. you didn't mention. Like the desirable fruit sounds like lusts, you know, true knowledge of good and evil. Maybe they just did it for the first time and they lost their virgin innocence. And there's the, a part in the Epic of Gilgamesh that's, all, that's really similar to this as well. I think it's Gilgamesh's brother. He's like a wild man and a sex priestess basically has sex with him and at the same time teaches him about civilization and brings him in the fold of being like a, a human, a civilized human, right? Clothing too is um, a symbol of human civilization. Like you can see it as it confers status. Uh, it confers um, occupation, right? Like a blacksmith wears a, a heavy apron, a chef wears a hat, a soldier wears, you know, a uniform. Clothing is emblematic of civilization. And so if I like to see this story as an allegory for, like you said, growing up, um, learning about your sexuality, uh, maturing into being a, a, a group or a, a, co a more cohesive pair rather than just children running around as individuals. 
Um, and yeah, procreating and all these things. If you take that story separate from Genesis one, which I think they're totally different. Um, this one is much more tied into ancient stories of the time or previous to that time. It's much more about coming of age, sexuality, maturity, uh, and under, like you said, understanding of consciousness and mortality. And for that, I think it's one of the better. So it's a keeper in the Bible. I think there's a lot of stories you can get. It's rid a of. keeper. I like that one. Yeah, yeah no, that's good. And you're and you're not wrong. I lots of people have read um, that there are pretty strong sexual connotations going on in this story with the serpent and and the nakedness. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't subscribe to that as much as you do, but I could be wrong and you could be more right. I don't know. Those are really good points. And those have been there points made for a long time. Yeah, really good stuff. Thank you. Other questions about any of this comments? Yeah, Marsha. Um, Jason, would you mind passing the mic to Marsha? It sure gives a good excuse to blame a woman for seduction. And for everything wrong, because she she got involved. She you know, got, she got what? Sorry. She got involved with the snake. Okay. Yeah. So let's blame her for about everything. And there are a lot of people who do that, no matter what. Um, you know, she dressed to, to she she deserved it. She dressed for it. Oh yeah. Yeah, all, all those things. Yeah, yeah. But but it really is a sad story, I thought, in that respect, that it didn't make them equal. Although the story as you read it does not make that distinction as precisely as many of the interpretations. You know, it's interesting. The serpent was wrong. He didn't really lie. Um, we're, we're taught, oh, he misled her. Like, well, no, but he didn't. You know, in a sense, he was, he was right. Because even God confirms at the end of the story. See, the man, meaning humanity, has become like one of us knowing good and evil. And the serpent said, if you eat this fruit, you'll become like God. He wasn't wrong. In the sense that like consciousness, awareness, like our level of consciousness and awareness, the ancient Hebrew authors in that story were saying, we're kind of godlike in our awareness of awareness, our awareness of the world. And we're kind of, we, we, we kind of have a divine spark here. It's not entirely, I mean, he's, the serpent wasn't wrong in that regard. And when he said, you will not die, when you eat it, well, it wasn't really wrong about that either. But she became, they became aware of their mortality, you know, through eating it. So, I mean, serpent gets a bad, gets a bad rap here a little bit, I think, you know. Um, but again, it's, it's, he's symbolic of temptation, maybe, you know, sexuality, yeah, all that. Yeah, I have um, a different question, though. Yeah, okay, sure. And then we got two over here. The question is, for a long time, the masses never read. And so everything was read to them and it was a story and the privileged who were educated had the insight and told the stories to the masses. Yeah. And I'd like you to comment on that because that makes a huge difference about what the masses have heard and how they. Well, I don't, I don't understand your question. You're asking how the masses would have heard the story through the oral tradition. What was the relationship, do you think, or how, what do you think the responsibility of the people who would tell the story mm. 
to the masses because they had the knowledge they could read, whether yeah. it was Hebrew or later Latin, whatever it was. I, I just think that this story wasn't first written down until probably the Babylonian exile. Uh, so that's 500 years before Christ. Um, you know, it was kept as an oral tradition and the responsibility uh, in the community was probably just, hey, we need to pass down these stories. But if you read, if you, if, if you actually are a careful student of the Old Testament, you don't really find them talking about this story, the way that Christians wring their hands over it, the way that we're talking about it today and picking it apart. And, you know, Christians made this kind of this story foundational to their entire systematic theology about Jesus and God and the arc of human history. If you read the Old Testament, you really don't find them talking about Adam and Eve and what happened in the garden. It's just not part, like a big part of what they thought. I think so it's, it's just interesting how absent it is from the rest of kind of like Hebrew history in, in the text. But all right, so we have Emily and, and Leanne here. Um, I found a lot wrong with that. What, what I, do you have a lot of problems? Just like with? the, it's like, you know, so first of all, it has God walking, right? Like he was walking through the, okay, is he human now? It's an allegory. It's an allegory. Remember that. It's not meant to be written, uh, read literally. Like God has, you know, 10 toes and two feet and is strolling. It's an allegory. Yeah. I just, I didn't like that. Because for me, it's like, okay, so there was an all-powerful God. And then he, I feel like he came in the form yeah. of Jesus. And I hear then you. he I hear did you. walk the earth. And so for me, that was like. It's confusing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the serpent. So he, the serpent said. Oh, he, you know, no, here's the truth. This is the truth. So you already said like God was like, oh, like us or somebody, the serpent said like us or God said. God said like us, okay. man has become like one of us. So what, so first of all, obviously the world wasn't different. It was them that just didn't know what was going on. Yeah, that's my Secondly, theory. the serpent has the knowledge why does the serpent have the knowledge? And only these two humans that they just made out of a rib and dust and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. How come they're the only ones that don't know what's going on? Right. And like, I, I just find this, like, I don't even understand what's yeah. happening right now. Like the it's, whole thing is just like, yeah. what? It's, it's easy to <laughs> push the metaphors too far and they all begin kind of collapsing. There's, I wish I had it this morning. There's a cartoon frame, a picture, a meme. I used it years ago when I talked about this last, but I'll just describe it to you. In the, uh, in the picture, God is standing behind the tree of knowledge and Adam and Eve are standing in front of it. So God's kind of hiding, but he's got the sock puppet on and it's the serpent like talking. So the, the, exactly. So the meme is basically God is the serpent, but he's also the tree. And he's kind of playing all these different roles in the narrative because God is actually kind of the, he's the one who made the tree of knowledge. Right. Right. And right. So, so, and he put it in the middle of the garden and he said, hey, let me introduce you to this tree. The one that I put in the middle, please don't eat from that. Uh -huh. now. Uh, and then I made this serpent and uh, he's going to attempt you to do it. You right. know, it's as if the, the story is kind of like, again, the ancient Hebrews were a lot more comfortable because of their views of God's sovereignty and holiness and, you know, to God is all. Like, they were cool with like, yeah, God's the author of both life and death, calamity and prosperity. You know, this is all God. Is, God is the snake. God is the tree. God is the one bringing consequences. God is the the bringer of life as well. You know, God's doing all this stuff. Get over it. 
not you, but yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, that was their mentality. Who are you to question the most high? This is what Hashem is doing. Who are you? Just accept it, embrace it, get over it, move on. You, you know, you get on with your life and ask yourself, what does God require of me? That's, that's your duty as a human being. That's what, the, that's what the law is. That was kind of their mentality thing. But then you have folks like Joe, her kind of like, no, God, you. I'm going to refrain from using more bad language today. But the idea is that, God, this is all your fault, you know. Well, so and just, like he created that whole situation for Job. Sure. An example out of Sure, to yeah. Be like, oh, look at this guy. He's yeah. constantly so the, got faith. So the Hebrew like, scripture is exact. So the Hebrew scriptures are not univocal in that understanding of God, that God is beyond questioning, beyond reproach. Others, you know, wrestle with God, challenge God, disagree with God. That's in there too. Great, great points. It's a confusing story. Yeah. Well, maybe one story isn't what it is. Maybe other, maybe people have different experiences Precisely. with, you know. Yeah, good stuff. I mean, you're right. Yeah. Um, I think I always loved viewing the serpent as bringing a boon rather than a curse. Um, in the sense of like Promethean fire, like Prometheus giving fire to mortals and it being a boon to mortality, but he being punished for it, it's like the serpent takes on this bad rap, but it really is like the boon of discernment and the boon of wisdom. And I love that Eve gets it first. Um, <laughs> she grows up first. She She's the one who discerns and discovers wisdom first. So uh, take that. Yeah. Yeah, that's great point. I love that reading. Uh, Steve. I just, um, the thing that, that's standing out to me at the moment is I love that this is the first story in the Bible outside of God speaking things into existence. It's really the first story we have where we're experiencing what God is. And one of the first things that happens is we find out that God lies. And God you know, God's, the serpent says, well, what did God say to you? And, yeah. and she says, well, God said, if we touch the fruit, we're going to die. And the serpent says, you're not going to die. And then they touch the fruit and they don't die. So the first thing that happens is God's wrong. And he, you know, or at least the, that care, you know, like this character of God is not infallible. And that is sort of the baseline. If you're reading start to finish, that's where we start with, with how, with who the character of God is. No, that's, you're right. It's, it's really interesting. I love how we're finding all these wrinkles in the story that, you know, like turning a, a gem in your hand, it just reveals these different facets. Um, Anne, would you pass it back to Anne? Um, so reading through the Old Testament, I agree, like, um, we, not, we don't see this story as being referred back to as an important feature. I know me growing up in fundamentalism, and then in later years, in still pretty conservative Christianity, a lot of frustration over other friends who still won't accept evolution. And it's because this is such a pivotal piece. I mean, it's like a, a house of cards. If you take that one out, then they in and they don't have the the they've locked their identity so much into this ideology that they don't have the flexibility to be able to um, to go, oh, well, maybe I just need to shift all of my understanding of different passages. They, it's an all or nothing deal. That's one thing. Um, but reading through the Old Testament, I don't see um, references back. 
But then Paul references, and I had to look up the passage because I couldn't remember, about, um, you know, by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so that by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So it seems like it was somehow in the consciousness of Judaism, through, through what we hear from Paul at least, that sin, as I would have said it many years ago, came into the world through Adam and Eve. Yeah. Um, even though it's not really actively discussed in other passages that I've seen in the Old Testament. What do you think that is? Yeah, it has a lot to do with uh, Paul's goals to systematize for the first time, <clears throat> I think, uh, the story of Christ and Christianity and articulate it in a way that would kind of merge Judaism and Christianity and, and in some ways show that Christianity is kind of like the, the ultimate, and this is not something that I believe, but is the ultimate fulfillment of Judaism. And you know, keep in mind, Paul was taking this story and this religion, this brand new religion around the Mediterranean world, trying to earn converts and argue and debate people into this faith. And so he needed a kind of robust theology and doctrines in order to do that. And so he fabricated, for lack of a better way of putting it, he and probably other early Christians were creating, you know, systematic theology around the persona of Jesus of Nazareth and his stories and articulating him through the lens of their Jewish religion, which meant you know, atonement theories, you know, this idea of blood sacrifices all of that played in, and, and he, he drew upon the story of Adam and Eve as sort of setting the foundation for why Jesus needed to come. But where in the Gospels, where in the Gospels do we find the, the writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who weren't their real names, but whatever, where do we find them, where do we find Jesus talking about Adam and Eve, and that, hey, everybody, I... <laughs> I needed to come because Adam and Eve did this thing, you know, uh, 5,000 years ago. And I need to fix it. Um, you know, nowhere do we find him articulating his mission in the context of the fall. Nowhere. nowhere. This idea was created by the first century church in order to spread this new religion, in order to earn converts, and articulate it specifically in a Jewish context, because that's where all the first Christians were, were the Jews. That's the best way I can, does that make sense? That's the best way I can answer your question. Yeah, I think so. Especially when you consider, like we know Paul was a Roman citizen. Yes. So he's probably highly influenced by the model of thinking yes. that they used, the rhetorical devices yes. they used. And so he integrated that with his Judaism in yep. a way that possibly other Jews at the time would not have even accepted or recognized. Perhaps. And, and Paul, as you rightly put it, was a Roman citizen, and he was heavily influenced by Greek thought, Greek philosophy, Greek metaphysics, and we find, we find that stuff in Paul's writings, too. Paul was a man of his time. He was just like we are, doing his best, probably, but he was a man of his time. Good stuff. Great question. Other thoughts? Got a couple minutes left. Uh, Tony on Zoom here. Happy Sunday, everybody. Uh just wanted to piggyback a little bit on what Emily had mentioned. I just find it very interesting. Is, <laughs> is there... uh, Marcia, for those of you listening online, Marcia asked, how old was I when 
when I, Bob is, is there children present? Okay, good. Uh, I'm gonna be that guy, right? Well, Pastor Aaron, you just ruined Christmas. Thank you. Uh, how old was I when I learned that Santa Claus didn't exist? Because I was raised in a Pentecostal fundamentalist home, my parents never taught us that Santa. In fact, they thought it was lying to tell us that Santa Claus was real. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So I never believed in the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy or Santa Claus. But ironically, I was raised to believe in a kind of Santa Claus on high. Um, who, yeah, 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 right. The all powerful, yeah, yeah, which strikingly has some similarities to old Saint Nick, but uh, ironically, so there's the answer to your question. But you asked it because you're like, am I, am I like, oh, we are, no, we absolutely, we do Santa with, with Lucy and Sophie, yeah, because Emily was raised that way, and I'm like, yeah, that's cool, that's cool, it's not traumatic. We'll grow out of it. That's fun. And that's our take. You do you, parents. You do you. Um, yeah. All right. Anybody else? Oh, uh, Dan. Yeah. You pass. Thanks. I thought this might be kind of a dumb question, so I wasn't going to ask it, but because the answer you just gave, I feel more emboldened now. But um, I really like the the message of putting the clothes on as a way of you have knowledge knowledge is good you want to understand your true nature that's a good thing i agree with that that sounds good to me um is there some kind of a case if you had to make a case for naivety or not be or not understanding your true nature is is there some situations where that could be beneficial thing or even possibly a good thing or is that always less desirable than you know i i would think yeah you want to know the truth about the universe and yourself and, and your place in it but just for the sake of conversation i guess <laughs> that's a great question everybody's different um i want to know i've just i'm just naturally that way and Ecclesiastes says, those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. Book of Wisdom in the Old Testament, which is absolutely true. Those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. Be careful what you, what you wish for, you know? Um, oh, sorry, Marsha, you can't hear me? Oh, you... Oh, those who increase knowledge increase sorrow, the Book of Ecclesiastes says. So to answer Dan's question, you know, I think for some folks, this the safe and good thing maybe is to maybe not pursue certain forms of knowledge. I, I'm just thinking out loud. And we have to be careful not to not to force people in, you know, and and lord knowledge over them and hurt them with knowledge. Some people just can't handle it, maybe. And that's okay. And it doesn't make them weak or lesser than us. We have to be sensitive maybe about these things. I I, I tend to think so, be careful. Um, but for me personally, I tend to think that if I can't know the truth and accept reality as it is, then that's not a good thing. I need to be able to make peace with the truth and reality. And, and for me, there's a deeper affirmation of life to be found, a deeper affirmation of life and a love of life and a love of others found on the other side 
of naivete, that, a, a kind of depth of affirmation that can only be found, only be found on the other side of knowledge, when you really know about you know, the world and, and the people in it and those in your lives, when you really know them, it's only then can you really affirm things in their depths and in the reality of their being. And for me, I want to go there. I want to say yes to life, despite all of life's problems. For me, that's the deepest possible affirmation of the love of life. I can only be gained by passing through the fires of knowledge. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. And then we'll conclude. Sorry, just really quick. I really like what Dan brought up. And it does seem maybe like a balance and yeah. the discernment of knowing when naivete is actually beneficial to you and when more knowledge isn't just knowing folks who have um, kind of gone off the deep end with politics because they want to know every single thing, what's happening politically. And yeah. it can kind of like, it's not that you want to be ignorant, but need to sort of balance with that. If you want to know everything, it can be really detrimental to your life um, yeah. and take over. So maybe like to Dan's point, um, part of discernment is knowing when you don't need to be discerning. Yeah. And social media is teaching us that maybe we don't need to fill our heads with constant knowledge about this terrible thing, that terrible, you know what I mean? It can be bad for us. Maybe. I, don't, I don't, these are great questions. I don't pretend to have all the answers there. Um, great, great points. Great stopping point. Thank you for being here, everybody. Let us conclude with our joint benediction, as we always do by saying this together. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. All right, go in peace, everybody.